The John Morris Show, episode 77. Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother... Hey there, my name's John Morris. I'm a former U.S. Army veteran turned freelance web developer. And my goal for you at this podcast is twofold. First, I want to help you learn how to code. Second, I want to help you turn that code into a full-time living. Because if you're like me, what you want is the freedom, the satisfaction, and the income that you get from being a high-profile web developer. So if that's you, be sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or YouTube so you never miss an episode. You can find all my past episodes and get subscribed at johnmorrisonline.com slash johnmorrisshow. Also, as you get value from the show, consider becoming a supporting listener on Patreon because you'll help keep the show free for everyone and you'll get access to exclusive courses, source code, and Q&A sessions available only to supporting listeners. Visit johnmorrisonline.com slash Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, to become a supporting listener. All right, let's get into this episode. Hey everybody, welcome back to the John Morris Show, johnmorrisonline.com. This episode, we're going to be doing our weekly Q&A as always. So I'm going to be answering questions that you've sent to me throughout this past week. So if you've sent me a question via email, Twitter, YouTube, Patreon, then be sure to stay tuned to this episode because there's a good chance I'm about to answer it. All right, so let's get dove right into this. The first question comes from John over on Patreon, and he asked, I have to say after going through almost all your videos that there aren't many questions I have at this point of my own personal development. I guess the only thing I'm curious about is what happens after you win a freelance bid. How does working with a client remotely work? Any tips on keeping them happy? How do you get paid, etc.? So the first thing is this is the most important part of being a successful freelancer is what happens after you win the job because Repeat clients and word of mouth is where the money's at. And that's in any services industry. You talk to anybody in the service industry, they'll tell you that it's in repeat clients and word of mouth. Now, again, that's any business too, but especially the service industry. So this is this is a good question to ask. You're, you're right to be asking about this and thinking about this. So I've I've talked about this before. You know, if you want to get kind of all my thoughts, maybe go and browse through the freelancing tips playlist I have over on YouTube. But let me cover some things that I think are probably most important. So the first one is you have to remember that it's always, always about the experience. And this is the point I constantly try to make. I constantly go back and forth with people. It's not just about the code and the product and how well it works. Yes, that's important, but it's just as much and often more about how you are to work with. And again, I harp on this constantly, and the trolls like to send me hate mail about it, but it's 100% true. 
communication, speed, reliability, not being a D-bag, all those things factor into the experience and often are often more important than the code and the product itself. That's not one or the other. That's not what I'm saying. It's both. So remember, it's about the entire experience. If you write really good code and write a really good product, but you are a nightmare to work with, you're not going to get repeat business. What clients will tell people is, hey, look, he's he's really good at what he does. You know, he's a smart guy, but be careful. He's a, he's a bear to work with. So if he can get through that, then maybe hire him. That's not the kind of... <laughs> That's not the kind of word of mouth that you want. That's not going to help you grow your business. All right, so remember, it's always about the experience. Second, create and give your clients a delivery schedule. Now, if you're following my advice, you're picking a specific niche where you have a very limited and specific set of end results that you're giving to people. You're not just saying, hey, I'll do anything and everything. You're giving very specific end results, a membership site, a smooth looking Ajax form or, you know, a contact form or whatever it is, or, or maybe it's just general website builds, etc. but it's not anything and everything. You, you have a, a range of products that you offer. So if you're doing that, like I advise you do, then you're going to be working on those same kinds of projects, that limited range of projects, over and over and over and over. It's going to become second nature to you because you've just done it so many times. I've built so many membership sites that I don't even really have to think about it. So if that's the case, then you know what the timeline looks like. You know what you need to do. It's all probably in your head. But you know exactly what, like day one, I got to, you know, this is the first thing I got to do, second day, third day, fourth day. These are the things that, you know what that looks like. So write it down. It doesn't have to be perfect the first time, but write it down and give it to your client. And let them know what's going to be happening on what days so that they can look at the timeline and see, one, about how long it's going to take, two, how to judge if things are on track and what's going to be happening to actually get there. It helps relieve a whole ton of tension in your client. Now, yes, you should add a little time in to that that's different from what you work with internally for yourself. You know, if, you, if you're saying internally you're going to get a project done in a week, maybe write out your timeline and pad it so that it, it's two weeks so that you can account for anything unforeseen. But you need to give them an idea of what's coming and, and what and when to expect each thing. It's huge. Because it relieves a ton of stress, a ton of tension, and puts them at ease. And really, it's better for you because it's going to cut down on all the late night emails of where are we at, what's going on with this, etc., etc. They already know. Third thing, create and use a communication schedule. So this goes on top of the delivery schedule that we just talked about. If you look at your delivery schedule, you'll likely see points on there where you're like, hey, it'd be a really good idea for me to communicate to my client at this point. Maybe I need some feedback. 
Or maybe I need to let them know that something is done. You know, each one of the milestones on your timeline would be a good point at which to communicate with your client. So create that communication schedule. Look at your delivery schedule and say, okay, when should I communicate? And then write that down as well. Now, you don't have to give that to them. You can maybe tell them, hey, I'll I'll make sure and communicate with you if I need feedback or at key, key points along the process. You don't need to necessarily give them the communication schedule, but you need to use it and act and, and proactively communicate because the more you proactively communicate, the less you're going to have to deal with the emergency email at 10 o'clock at night, freaking out about what's going on, this and that. You can alleviate a lot of that and it helps create a better experience for them. So write it down and then follow it. Now, there's a lot more that I could get into, but I really believe that if you pay attention to these things and do these things as a foundation, that you're going to be way ahead of a lot of other developers because most don't even do this. Most have a hard time completing the project and barely communicate. Here you come along and give them a delivery schedule of exactly what's going to happen when, and then you proactively communicate throughout the process, you're going to be way ahead. Remember, if you and your buddy are in the woods and a bear is chasing you, you don't need to be the fastest guy in the world. You just need to be faster than your buddy. These are things that will make you faster than other developers. All right, next question comes from Patrice over on Patreon. And he asks, I have a question about preprocessors in CSS. Is it important to use or not? What is the value to use it? Thanks and have a great weekend. So I think of preprocessors, and this isn't 100% accurate. I get that this isn't the greatest analogy for the purists out there who's going to write me and say, well, actually. But I think of preprocessors kind of like what PHP is to HTML. That's what PHP is. It's a preprocessor. So these are kind of like scripting languages for CSS. They add functionality like variables and mix-ins and a number of other things. And the general idea is to make writing CSS faster and easier. So the value in a preprocessor, like less or SAS or what are any of the number of other ones that are out there, the value in the right context is that your CSS will be more dry, meaning don't repeat yourself. So you won't have a lot of repeated code, which is oftentimes a big problem for new web developers. It'll be more organized. It'll be quicker to write and it'll be easier to maintain. So there's value in using this. However, the thing is, in my opinion, preprocessors tend to shine and do best on larger projects and projects that have multiple developers involved in them. And I don't, I personally don't necessarily work on a ton of projects like that. I'm talking enterprise type projects and so forth. So that's not to say they can't be, that they're not valuable on smaller projects. They obviously are. They're just not as valuable. So getting to the question, do you have to learn it? Look, you don't, you don't have to do anything, right? In fact, I'll let you in on a little secret. I rarely use preprocessors. But you should also keep in mind that I'm an old fuddy-duddy that likes to do things old school. So that's just me. I'm not saying don't use them, but do you have to? Mm, I don't. I mean, I'll probably get around to it eventually. 
But the big thing is, if you can write clean CSS code, clean, organized, concise CSS code, you can write clean CSS code. And if you can't, you can't. So a preprocessor, a lot of developers think of preprocessors as like this magic pill that's going to magically fix their bad CSS code. That's not going to happen. You still have to understand what clean, organized CSS code in its raw format looks like for you to really understand how to use a preprocessor to its best ability or to its maximum advantage. So in my opinion, if you're still learning, it's best to get really, really good at writing just plain CSS first before you start using a preprocessor because then you'll understand better how to use them. But then once you become a pro at that, once you have that down, you really uh, are good at writing clean, concise CSS, then you can use the preprocessor to make that easier for you because you understand what, what it is you're trying to accomplish. So do you have to? No. Should you? Depends. Can you? Absolutely. All right, next. Will via Patreon asks, do you use task runners like Gulp and Grunt regularly? Do you think they're necessary to learn? I usually see these mentioned a lot alongside less SaaS preprocessors on job requirements, but haven't really got around to learning them just yet. All right, so my answer is pretty straightforward. Nope. <laughs> I've actually, again, this is something I've never used either. But keep in mind, I'm old school. I'm a curmudgeon. I like doing things the hard way. I'm, you're talking to the guy who made himself use Notepad++ as opposed to all these advanced IDEs that did code hinting and you know could do function lookup and all that stuff. I made myself use Notepad++, which is a bare bones text editor, for like five years so that I didn't have any crutch before I actually allowed myself to start using that stuff. And heck, even the one I use now doesn't have a lot of those the functionality that some of them do. I just believe in understanding the code at its source, at its core, as much as possible. So now, <laughs> does that necessarily have anything to do with gulp and grunt? No, but uh, it does go back to an email that I wrote earlier this month. And that is, everything that you see is the next big thing that you have to learn. The example I think is funny is agile, agile development. I mean, this was like the huge buzzword in our industry forever. And it's all I ever heard of. I remember my little brother got into, suddenly became a coder and got into some corporate uh, job and now is all of a sudden pestering me about agile. But what do you hear about it now? Crickets. Matter of fact, I just read an article the other day over on LinkedIn titled, Agile is dead, something like that. And apparently it has been for a while. I don't really know because I haven't paid much attention. But apparently all the original creators have kind of abandoned the idea. And there's been lots of enterprise companies that were using it that are now dropping it because they've figured out it's not the end-all, be-all, perfect solution for every situation. Some have taken it and tweaked it and so forth. But... This big craze of agile, everybody has to learn it, everybody should be doing it. Now, everybody's scurrying from it. And the thing is, 
That's not the first time that's happened. This stuff happens over and over and over in this industry. So I really never get too caught up in all of this new stuff that comes out that everybody says you have to learn. It's the next great thing. Now, sure, I might miss a few things here and there, but I also don't waste a bunch of time learning stuff that a year later is dead. I think we should all be just a little bit more slow. Now, I'm don't get me wrong. I'm not saying don't ignore what's happening. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying just be a little bit more slow to jump right in. Unless you know exactly what you're going to do. Maybe you have a company that's you're targeting that you know is, is hiring for this stuff and you really want to work there and they need these specific requirements. Okay, then go for it. But I mean... Do you absolutely have to learn everything and use every new tool and everything that comes out? No. So wait, see what happens. And then if something sticks around and actually shows some longevity, well, then adjust and okay, maybe I'll check this out. So, but getting back to gulp and grunt, are those, I mean, are those that type of thing? These are really kind of more tools. Not really, but I mean... Who knows? Who knows what will be the next thing? Maybe gulp and grunt and there will be something that does a similar thing that now becomes the next best thing. I'm always, always, always leery of the word necessary. There's actually very little in our industry that's necessary. You could use words like helpful, valuable, beneficial. That's all good. That's fine and well. Necessary, though, is often the domain of the medium.com know-it-all that dude that one article writes about how every developer not learning node.js is a loser and then a year later writes another article about how node.js is dead (laughs) i don't know if you can hear me rolling my eyes right now but they're pretty far back in my head you see this stuff all over the place and i just personally don't buy into it a ton but that doesn't mean you can't use them. If you want to learn them, learn them. You know, and if you find them valuable, come back and tell me. Say, hey, look, I tried this and here's, but I, I just, I don't, I'm slow to move on some of that stuff. All right, last question here. Brendan via email asks, I have a pretty good understanding of HTML and CSS, but there's one issue that I've never been able to figure out. I cannot do margins or anything making the page compatible on any screen. I can make it look great on my main monitor, but if I switch to a different one, it looks like absolute hell. And I've tried everything I can find, and I can't get it to work. It would be awesome if I could get some tips from you. So I'll keep this one pretty short. You need to learn responsive web design. That's what it is. And I have a full YouTube tutorial series on it. So go to johnmorrisonline.com slash YouTube. Go to my playlist and you'll see the beginner's guide to responsive web design. Go go through that course. It's going to really teach you everything you need to know about responsive web design, and you're going to know how to do what you need to do so that your site looks good on any screen. All right? All right, that'll do it for this week. Remember, if you have a question, Patreon supporters get priority access to this Q&A. You may have noticed that most of the questions were from Patreon supporters. I have a hunch that's probably going to continue, so if you want to get your questions answered for sure, consider becoming a supporting listener at johnmorrisonline.com slash Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N. 
You also can, though, email me at john at johnmorrisonline.com, tweet me at jpmorris on Twitter, or leave me a comment on YouTube at johnmorrisonline.com slash YouTube. And if I can fit them in, I will, but Patreon supporters get priority. All right, that'll do it for this week. Thanks for the questions. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you on Monday.